come to kindergarten class. The Developmentally Appropriate Podcast. Hello everyone, welcome to Kindergarten Kiosk. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Kathy. Today we have an interview with Kelly Botts, who works with you, right mom? She does. She is our counselor at our school and she is amazing. I hope everyone is as lucky as our students and have a counselor that truly cares about students and is their advocate and works really hard for their benefit. Kelly is a clinical social worker who provides direct therapy services to grade K through six at HMK Elementary in Moab, Utah. Her specialty is working with children who have experienced trauma. As a therapist, she is trained in EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing, and TF-CBT, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, and will soon be adding neurofeedback to her trauma treatment repertoire. She prides herself on staying current with innovative trauma interventions that are based on the ever-evolving field of neuroscience. The point of, of this uh, this lecture mm-hmm. is to help teachers understand and implement a trauma-informed approach in the classroom. There's been a trend over the past probably about 10 years to have trauma-informed or trauma-sensitive agencies. And we're seeing these trainings in hospitals, um, in ER rooms with general practitioners. We're seeing it with first responders like EMTs and firefighters and police officers. Um, We're seeing it in domestic violence shelters. And um, the point of it is because it allows us to take a step back and be more objective and not take um, a student's behavior or a student's reaction so personally to really try to, to, to really try to have a different lens so that we understand that what we're seeing from the student isn't about us and it's not necessarily in response to us. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that that allows us as people in the, in the school environment um, to to open our hearts and love them a little bit more so that they can um, so that they can then open their minds and be able to really learn the way that we want them to do that and with as far as schools are concerned it's a little bit newer um, but there are some organizations that are going into inner city um, underfunded districts and they're creating these trauma sensitive programs and the program itself is pretty well funded so they're actually able to um, bring in neuroimaging equipment and they do scans of these students before the teachers and staff and it's not just for teachers it's it's custodians it's secretaries anyone that's interacting with that child in that building or they might even just be passing them in the hallway they all get this training And this is the first step in it, in just like a very, um, like an overarching introduction to develop an understanding. And then it goes a little bit further and there's actually specific curriculums that can be taught. People can come into the school and do workshops with small groups of teachers and do case studies. Um, And so in the districts where this has happened... The, the neuroimaging that's captured after, and it's a, it's a long process, it's three to five years, mm-hmm. but there actually is change in the neural networks in the brain. And these mm-hmm. kids are able to get out of the lower regions and get up into the parts of their, their learning centers. Um, so it's really, it's really exciting and that we have the science now to, to help us mm-hmm. navigate if this stuff really works. And it's proving that, you know, that, that it does work and that trauma, we're able to see what trauma does to mm-hmm. the brain. And that I'll go into more details on that as mm-hmm. I go on. So um, in order to explain what trauma is, rather than giving a really clinical definition um, or a textbook definition, which tend to be kind of dry and boring and also um, the the clinical post-traumatic stress disorder PTSD which we hear a lot with um, with veterans and then sometimes also in in response to children living in really neglectful or abusive situations what we're learning as we as the brain science becomes more available to us is that 
um, PTSD, the way it's set, doesn't necessarily fit for kids, for, mm-hmm. our, for our population. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a group of trauma therapists, um, psychologists, psychiatrists, and clin- clinicians that tried to get a new diagnosis specifically for kids mm-hmm. that had gone through traumatic situations um, in the new DSM-5, which is kind of like the clinical thing that we have to use in order to bill um, insurance companies or Medicaid, mm-hmm. and it was denied by the panel. Um, mm-hmm. So what I find is the, the best way to explain what trauma is is to explain the ACE study. Um, mm-hmm. This study was conducted in the, um, the mid-90s when HMOs became really popular in our country as ways to insure people, mm-hmm. and Kaiser Permanente, based in Southern California, at that point, they had realized that a lot of their healthcare costs were being attributed to obesity. Mm-hmm. And if there was any way that they could help people change their lifestyles and not become obese as they stayed in the HMO, it would save the HMO a lot of money. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't incur these, these physical issues that were extremely costly. So they hired this man, Dr. Vincent Folletti, to run this program, and many of the participants were having enormous success. They were really doing well. But then what he noticed is after about a year of doing this, a lot of the people were dropping out, and especially the people that were having the greatest successes. And he's just a brilliant man, and so rather than just saying, well, it's their problem, he really he really wanted to improve the program and get feedback and say, what could I do differently to keep you invested in this? Like, well, come on, what happened? Uh-huh. And so he started, he started to ask people that dropped out to come back in so that he could interview them, so that he could figure out how he could improve the program. And in one of his first interviews, he, he slipped. He said something that he didn't mean to. And um, he had a woman in front of him, and he accidentally asked her, at what age were you first sexually active? And her answer was four. And when, she, when, when he answered it, she, you know, he had her like, uh-oh, I, I didn't mean to just say that, and oh my goodness, I am mm-hmm. so sorry. And something clicked for him, and so then he started to specifically ask about sexual abuse. And, and the majority of the people who had dropped out had been sexually abused. And then he started to ask about other adverse childhood experiences, which is what ACE is the acronym for, Adverse mm-hmm. Childhood Experiences. And more and more, he was finding that something had happened to these people before the age of 17. Some trauma had happened in their life that had not been resolved and it caused all of these negative outcomes to occur in their adult lives. Mm-hmm. And so then he went and he presented this. Um, and I can't remember what the venue was for, for that, that he was presenting it. But there was a man in the audience. And a lot of the doctors kind of poo-pooed it. Like, yeah, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a nice theory. But I, don't, you know, I think if you do a lot of research, you're going to find that it's not valid. And there was a man from the CDC, the Center of Disease Control, in the audience, and he got the CDC behind it and said, yes, let's study it. And what makes this study um, so incredibly informative is is the number of participants. So it had over 17,000 participants, Mm -hmm. which if you, you know, any of us that like research know that when you have that high of a number... Not that we can ever be totally conclusive, but that demonstrates, you know, pretty, yeah. pretty, pretty rigid, pretty yeah. uh, accurate results, right? Right. And so, um, so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to read through. It's just ten questions. Mm-hmm. Um, I use this sometimes when I um, when a student is going to start therapy with me, and I also like to ask parents as well because, as we'll see in a little while, it's all it's all interrelated. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to go through, there's 10 questions and for every question that you can answer yes to, you give yourself one point. And what I tell, um, what I tell a lot of my audience members when I'm doing this presentation is that if you had trauma in your life, it can, this can be very triggering. Mm -hmm. And so uh, if you want the information, but don't want to think about yourself or your own experiences, think about one of those students that you've worked with, maybe someone who is really difficult or somebody who, you know, 
who had a difficult time and allow their experience to deliver this information to you rather than your own self. And if you do get triggered, make sure that wherever you are um, listening to this, that you find someone who can help you work through whatever's come up for you. So that being said, question number one. Did a parent or other adult in the household often or very often swear at you, insult you, put you down, or humiliate you, or act in a way that made you afraid that you might be physically hurt? Number two, did a parent or other adult in the household often or very often push, grab, slap, or throw something at you, or ever hit you so hard that you had marks or were injured? Question number three, did an adult or person at least five years older than you ever touch or fondle you or have you touched their body in a sexual way or attempt or actually have oral, you know, vaginal intercourse with you? Number four, did you often or very often feel that no one in your family loved you or thought you were important or special or your family didn't look out for each other, feel close to each other, or support each other. Number five, did you often or very often feel that you didn't have enough to eat, had to wear dirty clothes, and had no one to protect you? Or your parents were too drunk or high to take care of you or take you to the doctor if you needed it? Number six, was a biological parent ever lost to you through separation, divorce, abandonment, or other reason? Number seven, was your mother or stepmother often or very often pushed, grabbed, slapped, or had something thrown at her? Or sometimes often or very often kicked, bitten, hit with a fist, or hit with something hard? Or ever repeatedly hit over at least a few minutes or threatened with a gun or knife. Number eight, did you live with anyone who was a problem drinker or alcoholic or who used street drugs? And that one, um, I haven't checked into it recently, uh, but I think that um, because we're, ha we're seeing more and more prescription drug abuse, especially um, opioids, that may be part of question number eight now. Mm -hmm. Was a household member depressed or mentally ill, or did a household member attempt suicide? And number 10, did a household member go to prison? Mm -hmm. So one yes to any of these is a trauma. Mm -hmm. So if any of your kids, any of your students can, can answer yes to any one of these, then they have had a traumatic experience in their life. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that we know is that, I mean, the kids that I work with have pretty, um, come from pretty traumatic experiences mm -hmm. and lots of neglect and abuse. And so I don't get kids that just have one. Most of my kids have three, three, no, three to eight, mm -hmm. sometimes 10. Um, and so based upon the score, you have a certain probability of outcomes. And if you're interested in this, I suggest that you, you can go to the um, cdc.gov website or you can just Google ACE study or my ACE score. And there are hundreds, if not thousands, of probabilities of outcomes depending upon your score. And there's different graphs that show like what your probability of outcomes are if you have no aces and then if you have one to three aces and four to eight aces. <laughs> and it can be physical outcomes, like biological health outcomes, and then mental health outcomes. Um, the one that I, I like to use with when I when, especially when I talk with teachers, because depression and anxiety are usually the two biggest things that the two, um, the two most diagnosed mental health disorders. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and depending upon, you know, zero up, um, greater than four, the percentage of your, the, the, the greater your chances are of at least once in your life having a major depressive disorder mm -hmm. or an episode. And, um, 
with kids, with childhood and adolescence, if we look at suicide attempts, um, if a child has an ACE score of seven or more, mm-hmm. they're 5,100% more likely to attempt suicide in their lifetime. <clears throat> so that's kind of staggering. Yeah. And even more staggering is how many of our how many of our physicians aren't aware of this study or disregard this study because it has so many implications and they're really in a place where they could they could help children and families tremendously. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, a graph of well, it's a visual. It's like a, if you think about the food pyramid, we'll think about a pyramid. And it has, uh, it has six layers. And so obviously the bottom is the largest and then it goes up to the top. So the, if the very bottom layer is adverse childhood experiences and they have a lot of those, mm-hmm. then the next thing that happens is disrupted neurodevelopment, which we're going to talk about in a minute. And then when you have that disrupted neurodevelopment, you're bound to have some sort of social, emotional, or cognitive impairment. And then when you have those, you have at-risk health behaviors. And then you get disease, disability, and social problems. And then you have an early death. Mm -hmm. So now, if you've had that adverse childhood experience and you've gone all the way through this pyramid, Mm -hmm. and in that pyramid you've procreated and you've had children, we have this intergenerational transmission. Mm -hmm. And we're hearing a lot of that right now, um, depending upon what community you're in and what the socioeconomic status is of your students, but intergenerational poverty is, has become this, this sort of buzzword, and there's um, more federal and state funding going towards studying what can be done, because up to this time, we haven't really found a way to stop that cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, my personal opinion, and the opinion of a lot of uh, traumatologists or those of us that study trauma and how it affects the brain and the body. I don't necessarily see it as intergenerational poverty. I see it as intergenerational stress. Mm -hmm. And if we can't find a way to relieve the stressors of these families, then their body is still going to, their body and their brains are going to produce those stress hormones and they're going to continue to have these mental and physical um, impairments throughout their life and continue to transmit them, which I will get into a little bit. The other part of this, and this is sort of a, a side note, and I encourage you to research it if you're at all interested. It's a very new branch of science. It's called epigenetics. And you can find YouTube videos and there's books out there, but it's a it's a fascinating new branch of science. And they're really studying the intergenerational transmission of stress. So If we think of DNA as your hardware and genes as your software, we have approximately 23,000 genes in our DNA. And these genes get together and they create recipes. Now, the awesome thing that we've just discovered is that these genes are like ingredients. So different genes can go together and create different recipes. Mm -hmm. And what those ingredients are are what are our sleep habits, our nutrition, our interpretation of environment? Um, you know, do we drink? Do we smoke? Do we live in a, in a um, neighborhood where there's a lot of violence? All of those things get expressed in our genes. And the amazing thing is that these gene patterns, these gene recipes, they get transmitted from mother to child. Hmm. So there's a scary part to that, right? Because right. if... if depending upon what you've been exposed to and how you've lived your life. But there's also a really cool part about it because you can take someone um, like me. And so I, I do some self-exclosure, self-disclosure in this presentation, but I feel comfortable doing that because I've had my therapy and I've worked through my childhood traumas. Um, but I'm, a, I'm an eight on the score. And, you know, and so I had a lot of really high risks, but I also was fortunate enough. I was I was blessed to be put in environments that had a lot of protective protective factors and positive things. And so by the time I had a child when I was in my late 30s, 
I was really fortunate that I had worked through all that. So the, the, the recipes that I passed on to my child are so different than the recipes that were passed on to me or that were passed on to my parents. And that's like the exciting part of all of this is that you as teachers, when you have positive interactions with your children and you start firing those positive neural networks in their brain, you are changing their recipes. And, and it is, if you think about the amount of time that you have these children, um, we have, regardless of what their home environment is, the recipes that you're creating, the way that you're putting the ingredients of their, of their genes together when they're in your classroom or when they're, when they're in your hallways and your schools, makes a humongous difference in these, in these children's lives. It's really, really exciting. That's so nice um, to know that you can, that it can change, that things can change. Oh, I know. It's really, it's, it, it, I can't tell you how I could, I mean, I could rant on it for hours, <laughs> but the, the neuroplasticity and the fact that like you can teach, you know, that old saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. You really can. <laughs> yes. It, it takes, it takes time and repetition, but, um, it is super exciting. Mm. Yes. Yeah. So let's talk about stress a little bit. Um, you know, is stress really that bad? Because it's something that we all experience in our day-to-day lives. Um, there, if we break stress down into three kinds of stress, we have positive stress, tolerable stress, and toxic stress. So positive stress is, uh, you know, if you have to give a presentation in front of a bunch of people <laughs> and start to feel a little nervous about what you're going to say or if you're going to stumble off your words or whatever that is you know what happens chemically in your body is that stress hormones start to be released and and you start to sort of rise up on your on your um your vitals your heart rate goes up your breathing changes um you might start sweating a little bit but then you get into your groove and you do your thing and everything gets regulated and it goes back to normal and, and the tolerable stress is kind of the same way. Like maybe you have a few really stressful weeks at work or maybe you have a parent that's, um, that has to go into the hospital for a procedure and you're really nervous about it. That's sort of, so it's the tolerable stress, it lasts a little bit longer, but in that you're able to get yourself regulated. You have coping mechanisms to bring you back to your baseline, to your sort of relaxation state. And both of these are actually really good for us. It's sort of like exercising and getting your heart rate up. It's good for our body to produce this hormone and have it flow through. And then it's good for your body to be able to stop producing the hormone and just kind of take a deep breath and chill out. Mm -hmm. Now, the toxic stress, that happens in our kids that have, you know, have these ACE scores of even just a one, um, but then as we get higher into the threes and the sixes and the nines, and when when that toxic stress starts to be released into the body, it's like um, it's like a drippy faucet. I, it's the best way I find to describe it. Um, and so it's never turned off. There's always a drip, drip, drip of stress being released into the body. So the child never, ever, ever obtains that baseline that so many of us know. Mm -hmm. There's always some kind of an alert system going on. And this can actually begin in the womb. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, When the, um, you know, when the mom is in a high stress environment, Mm -hmm. those hormones are being released into the, into the fetus. Mm -hmm. So when that child is born, they're already operating at a higher baseline mm-hmm. of, of toxic stress than a child who has been born with a mom that didn't have toxic stress in her life. Um, so if we look at an MRI, if we look at um, a, like an image of the, of the brain, um, and you look at the brains of kids that have four or more ACEs, what you see um, in the hippocampus, which is the main structure of the brain that's involved in learning and memory, that part of the brain is actually shrinking and becoming inactive. And the sort of the, um, the very primitive part of the brain where the amygdala is located 
um, which is like the smoke alarm of the brain, and it's the one that's um, responsible for emotional reactivity. That one is constantly misfiring, so that one's constantly on alert. Even if even if there's no danger there, that four aces or more, we oh, we're always wondering, is it going to happen now? Is it going to happen now? Is it going to happen now? So when you get these kids on the first day of preschool or the first day of kindergarten walking through the door, if some of these kids are living in these environments with four or more aces, their baseline is already so much higher than the kids that come from the homes with no aces. And what that means is that something that could be really, really simple, like you can't sharpen your pencil for whatever reason, there's a piece of lead stuck in there. The kid from a zero ace home is gonna be like, teacher, teacher, help me. The kid from the four or more ace home is gonna have a complete meltdown because the, the way that they get, they're, they're so much closer to that emotional dysregulation because of that constant drip of stress than the kid that walks through the door with no aces at all. They're just strung tighter all the time. Yeah, just yeah, because they have those stress chemicals in their body. And so they're always in that base part of their brain. They're always in that smoke alarm, that fight, flight, or freeze. And they have to be for their survival. You know, they don't know if they don't know if they're going to be fed or they don't know if dad's going to come home and open that can of stuff that smells really bad and makes him act funny. Or, you know, they don't know if mom's going to pull up that pipe and start smoking. Um, they don't know if they're going to get side walked across, you know, and walked across the room. So they, they start going into these high alert. And if they don't think about it, it's not conscious. That's mm-hmm. the other thing is that it's just... It, it happens in the part of the brain that we don't control. Mm-hmm. It's just what we do as primitive creatures to survive. Um, and so if we, if we take it back to the beginning and we think about attachment, which I'm sure that a lot of you are aware of, you know, you know being um, people who are experts in early child development, the two basic kinds of attachment in attachment theory are secure and in, insecure. And so um, when we come into this world, we, uh, we're kind of selfish and we have a lot of expectations. <laughs> like we human beings, when we, when we come out of that womb, we just expect that we are going to get what, what we want and our needs are going to be met. And that's, that's great because we really can't fend for ourselves like some other creatures. And the way that we communicate that is by screaming, Right. <laughs> Right. And right, yeah. <laughs> and so if we use that as an example. Um, let's say baby is, you know, little being is hungry. And so um, baby starts screaming. Baby can't identify that I'm hungry. Baby just knows that something in my body doesn't feel good. I don't feel right. I don't feel balanced. So I'm going to communicate that by screaming. And if nobody comes, I'm going to scream louder. And then if nobody comes, what happens is that um, the little human baby will start shaking. And then if still nobody comes, the baby completely shuts down. So if we go back to the first point, the alarm. So something in that baby's body is not balanced and it triggers the alarm. I'm hungry, I'm hungry. When that happens, those stress hormones in that brain, that little developing brain, are being released and and going into the body. The only thing in a human being that is going to stop those stress hormones from dripping from the brain into the body is human touch. So in a a child that's becoming securely attached, the primary caregiver goes, picks up the child, rubs the cheek, talks softly, has a little sing-song, it's okay you know, and, and, and relaxes them. And that touch and that quiet voice and that smile and that calmness and that love and that care, really, it stops the stress hormones. And so I'm already learning as this little tiny being that just breathes air for the, you know, the first time that when I need something, somebody's going to come, somebody's going to come and they're going to fulfill that need. And when they do, I don't feel icky anymore. So we've started what I explained earlier 
that, you know, that very healthy stress release of, okay, I get stressed out and now I'm back to my baseline. But if we take the kid that lives in a home where there's neglect or where there's drug abuse or where there's domestic violence or um, where there's a lot of violence in the neighborhood or where there's extreme poverty and we don't know where our next meal is going to come from and mom has to work and my older siblings are taking care of me and they don't know how to be a good caregiver, then what happens is I go from my screaming to my shaking to my shutdown and those stress hormones are continuing to drip the whole time and I never, ever, ever get, I, know, I don't even know what that baseline looks like that the securely attached kid has because my body always has a puddle of stress hormones in it somewhere. And what, what's happening in a brain way, so if we, if we look at the brain um, from zero to seven, it is like the most incredible fireworks display you've ever seen in your life. Mm-hmm. And these neural pathways are forming and they're connecting and it's just boom, 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 constantly, constantly, whatever, whatever I'm taking into my mouth, whatever I'm touching, whatever I'm hearing, whatever that environment is. And the pathways that are being reinforced get stronger. They develop these myelin sheaths around them. And the pathways that aren't being reinforced or aren't being used, they actually get pruned. So if we think about a kid that's being securely attached, having their needs met, so let's say even 70% of the time when I cry, somebody's coming to help me feel better and teach me how to soothe and teach me how to calm my emotions down and stop that, excuse me, those stress hormones from being in my body, then what's being reinforced there is the world is a safe place, I'm going to be okay, even if my, my needs aren't met as soon as possible and I don't get that instant gratification, I know someone's there for me and I'm going to be okay. But if we think about the kid who goes from the screaming to the screaming louder to the shaking to the shutting down, and that's what happens to them 70% of the time, the neural pathways in their brain that are being reinforced are, are the ones that stay in the very primitive part of the brain that this is a really, really dangerous place and I have no idea if I'm going to survive and the only way I can is if I stay on pins and needles all the time and make sure that I can protect myself. And so if we looked at, I, um, I, if you don't have the image, I wish I could um, tell you like how to Google this image because it's a, it's, um, I, I think it's a, I can put the image with the podcast maybe and then. The one that's the brain and attachment. Yeah. yeah. That would that would be great. Yeah, I'll put so, it with it. This is a really um, a really severe, exaggerated version of what I'm talking about. But I think that it, it's a great visual to show you what I mean about how and what you said earlier, Lindsay, about how you have these kids that walk in and they're wound tighter. They're actually wired differently. Hmm. When a, when a kid that's come from a, a highly neglectful home, like I have a, um, I'm working with a first grader who has been in a safe home now for, uh, since October of last year. Before that, he was in a foster care situation for about six months. But basically for the first five years, four and a half years of his life, extreme neglect and abuse. And so cognitively and emotionally and socially, this kid operates on, you know, maybe maybe a three-year-old level. And it's not when he says, I can't remember my ABCs, it's not that he doesn't want to. Mm -hmm. He wants to please his his adoptive mom. He wants to please his teacher. He He doesn't want to feel dumb. But if you look at this photo, you see... He does not, his brain has not developed in those areas yet because he has never been able to get out of the lower part of the brain. So if we look at these images, the one on the right is an abused brain. And like I said, it's extreme. This is from a child that grew up in a, um, in a Romanian orphanage. And the one on the left is a securely attached brain. And so Um, if you're at the bottom of the page and you see the red area, 
the brain on the right is super active. The red is, is, is bigger and there's more tendrils to it. So that's the alarm center. And then if you go up further and you see um, the parts that are circled, but also all the black area in the right brain, those are the areas that control learning. Those are the areas that control, um, teaches us how, to, how we control our emotions. Um, those are the places where we learn how to talk. Those are the places where our imagination lives. Uh, and so some of these kids that walk into your classroom, it really isn't that they don't want to do it for you. Oh my goodness, they want to please you. And oh my goodness, they really want to learn what you have to teach them. But they just don't have the brain development to do it yet. And that's why it's so important to get them into trauma treatment, because once we start giving kids a way to heal from their trauma, what we see is that those areas of the brain actually start firing again. Once a kid feels safe and those stress hormones stop releasing, those neural networks start developing into the higher areas of the brain, which is so awesome for educators. It is. <laughs> I know it's it's there's you have so much power. It's really <laughs> it's really really exciting. So let's talk a little bit about the trauma lens that I sort of the whole name of this presentation. The um the the if you could walk away with nothing else, the def, the best definition of a trauma lens that I ever heard at one of the numerous trainings that I go to on this topic is rather than looking at a child who you have tried everything with and it's Friday afternoon and it's been a really long week and this kid has pushed every single button that you have rather than saying oh my gosh what is wrong with you of course you wouldn't say that out loud but just you know like in your head um, to say oh my goodness what's happened to you What's happened to you in your little time on this planet that this is how you have to respond to the world, that this is how you have to react? That is the trauma lens in one very you know, simple example. Not what's wrong with you, what's happened to you? And you can see, if you say those two sentences to yourself and you, and you, th and, and you, and you take a little bit of awareness of your, of your body state, and what happens to you the what's wrong with you it's really easy to kind of go forward and 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 you feel a little aggressive and attacking and judgmental if you say oh my goodness what's happened to you your body relaxes a little bit it, it maybe even goes down rather than forward in an aggressive way mm -hmm. your voice goes down it just it completely changes and not and the thing that you have to remember with kids that um that have experienced trauma and come from these, these homes that have at least one yes to an ACE question is that um, they watch what you do more than they listen to what you say. Mm -hmm. So a kid that comes from a home, especially children who have been physically and sexually abused, um, they are much more attuned to a very simple facial expressions. And I had a kindergarten teacher in the school where I work last year who had this little boy that's a first grader now that I was talking about. And I was at his IEP meeting and I was so impressed with her because she realized, she said, I, I didn't know what I had done, but then I realized that I took the smile off my face when I was talking to him. And that was so like that was such a trauma-informed response because she recognized that that kid became completely dysregulated and could no longer hear anything that she was saying because her smile went away. And most likely that triggered something that he's not aware of. Kids can't tell me, oh, so Kelly, if my teacher doesn't smile or if their left eyebrow goes up or if they... <laughs> If they tilt their head to the right, then that freaks me out because that, re that reminds me of when my dad used to beat me up. You know, they can't do that. It's not, it's not that conscious level. But, they, but you, you make that change in your face or your voice gets louder and they, that response in their body, that smoke alarm goes off mm -hmm. and all bets are off. They're back in that fight, flight, or freeze and they can't listen or take in anything that you have to say. 
So with the trauma lens, if you, if you go from the perspective of what's happened to you, not what's wrong with you, mm-hmm. we, the energy that you emit, the body language, your facial expression with those two different sentences, you could even practice it in front of a mirror and watch a child that is tra- has trauma, has a trauma past, has a trauma history is going to sense the difference between you thinking what's wrong with you versus you thinking, oh my goodness, what's happened to you. Hmm. The next one, uh, you know, why does this kid have it out for me? <laughs> this, and this is like what I said to you earlier, you know, they know every one of my buttons and they push them <laughs> a million times. Um, it's not a personal attack against you. These kids that come from these high trauma environments, um, everything that they do, every behavior that they have, they have it because it has served them, it has protected them, it has kept them alive Mm -hmm. and kept them able to even walk into your classroom and function on maybe even a really small level. Um, and, And so it serves a purpose. Does it serve the purpose in your classroom when you have 20 whatever other kids in there? Absolutely not. But it it's but if you can see it as not being an attack against you, but really okay, this is not comfortable for me, but this has served you somehow. Mm-hmm. Again, it just gives you another lens and another way to look at it. Why does this kid never listen to me? Um, instead of that one, what can I do to help you feel safe? So something has happened right here in this time that has made you, remember their baseline is already higher, so it doesn't take a lot. There's not a lot of room in there for these kids to freak out, whether it be they get frustrated or they get mad or they start crying or they start throwing stuff or whatever it is. It's, it's, they don't have a big gap in there. Um, but they've gone from there, however high their baseline is, to that point of complete emotional dysregulation because they don't feel safe. So if that can be, if your first question can be, okay, what's happened to you? And your second question, your second statement can be, this isn't about me. This is about them. And your third statement could be, what can I do to help this child feel safe right now? What does this child need in this classroom or in this hallway or in this bathroom or wherever you are on this playground right now to feel safe so that they can get out of the smoke alarm part of their brain and start using the higher areas of their brain to recognize that, that nothing is threatening them right now. Um, and the last point on the trauma lens is um, shame and blame pointed at child and parent. And I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, it's really hard to not blame the parents. Mm-hmm. But I have to say, um, I have worked with hundreds of parents, as many of you have, and in, and in my role as a, as a trauma therapist, um, I have never met a parent that wasn't doing the best they could. Now, do I wish that best was different? Oh my goodness, yes, I do. So bad. But it, what they're doing never comes from a place of bad intention. If you think about what I talked about earlier and the intergenerational transmission of stress and the epigenetics and those recipes and ingredients, most likely if you have a traumatized kid, you have a traumatized parent. And in that parent, it's never been resolved. So that parent has a really high baseline and that parent has never learned how to self-soothe and that parent has never learned how to regulate their emotions and that parent has never learned proper conflict resolution. So they're doing the best they can, and they're just basing it on their own experiences that they've had in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. And why this is important from a, from a trauma lens and a trauma-sensitive school perspective is that just like I challenged you to look in the mirror and notice what happens to your, to your body and your facial expressions when you say, what's wrong with you? And then, what's happened to you? The same thing happens when you're interacting with parents. When somebody's judging us, we feel it, even if they're not saying anything. There's a body posture that happens, and we're very intuitive creatures. And so if a parent feels judged by you, they're going to become defensive. Mm -hmm. They're not going to support what you're doing in the classroom. They're going to challenge you. They're going to make things your fault Um, versus if you can really find a way to sort of retrain 
you're thinking that this parent is doing the best they can and what can I do to support them and help them to feel safe? That's a completely different energy that you're giving this person. And in these schools that have, have gone through trauma-sensitive trainings, they find that you know so many of us were like, oh my gosh, what do we have to do to get this parent invested? Why isn't this kid bringing homework? Why isn't this kid remembering a lunch? Well, this kid doesn't come to school clean. Um, you know, how, what do we do to get to get parents to buy into this and to be present in the classroom and present in the child's education? Uh, and and I hear that all the, like so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we're noticing in these tra- in these schools that have gone through the trauma sensitive training is that um, the parents actually become more invested. They actually start coming to the parenting classes that are offered because they don't feel like anyone's pointing a finger at them. They already know they're not doing a good job. They don't need you to, you know, they don't need you to judge them. They mm-hmm. know that. They already feel self-conscious about it. Mm-hmm. So the more that you can just help them feel safe, just like you're helping their, their children feel safe, the more, um, the more results you're going to see from the parents. So just a few facts for all of you educators out there. So one in four children attending school has been exposed to a traumatic event that can affect learning and or behavior. So think about, you know, your first day of school was a few weeks ago or a week ago. One out of every four kid that walks through that door has had a traumatic experience. It doesn't mean that the traumatic experience hasn't been resolved and they haven't healed from it, but they somewhat every one of these kids had something has happened to them. And sometimes a kid has a trauma that we're not even necessarily aware of. You know, maybe they had a really bad fall off their bike. Mm-hmm. And we like they we think they're fine, but if they if they have these symptoms, these trauma symptoms and their brain is releasing that stress chemical, they're not going to be able to learn in your classroom as much, which is why it's so important for schools to have school therapists and school social workers. Mm -hmm. Just my own little pitch there. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So obviously, everything that I've talked about, trauma impairs school performance, lower grades, more absences, um, dropping out, suspensions and expulsions, and decreased reading ability. The other thing that I've noticed um, is a decreased ability for math as well. Mm. Um, There's two types of trauma. There's a single exposure and a chronic exposure. And like I said earlier, most of the kids that have ACE scores, they're not just going to have one. Because normally if there's substance abuse in the home, then there's going to be domestic violence and there's going to be neglect. And, you know, they all kind of go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Um, But the single exposure trauma can happen. Um, The house burns down, the child gets into a bad car accident, those sort of things happen. And when those things do, that kid needs help so that they can learn again. Because if, if they don't, then they just stay in the lower part of the brain and they can't, they can't reason. Mm -hmm. They can't use what you need them to use when they come to school every day. You also see um, an inability to focus, to stay organized, um, they can't really stay on task. So um, one of the travesties I feel like in, in our country is the high number of children who have been diagnosed with ADHD over the past couple of decades. And from a traumatology perspective, which is my perspective and not a medical model, um, while I do believe that, that there is something called ADHD and that some people have it, what we're realizing and what we're, what we're learning through, um, through neuroscience is that when, when unresolved trauma stays in a child, the symptoms, part of the symptoms are the same as ADHD. So a lot of these kids have trauma that's not being resolved and then they're going to doctors and they're getting put on meds mm-hmm. and sometimes the meds work and sometimes they don't. But it's not really dealing with the, the, the root cause of why these kids aren't able to stay on task and stay focused. Mm-hmm. And hopefully as we evolve and all of this information, more people become trauma-informed, we'll start seeing a change in the number of kids that are diagnosed with ADHD and then real good treatments that can help them heal and not ever have to go on meds is sort of my vision and dream. Um, so these are also the kids who, uh, you know, they have, t- teacher, I have a tummy ache again today. Lots of physical symptoms mm-hmm. because we're not, 
you know, we're not just brains walking around. The stress hormones are released into our body too. Mm -hmm. And they're not lying to you. They're not manipulating you. Their tummy really does hurt. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's because they're dealing with all of this stuff in their life. Poor control of emotions, like the littlest thing sets them off. You know who those kids are. Um, You know, the eraser, they use the wrong end and suddenly it's like the world has ended and they're on the floor in a puddle. Mm -hmm. Um, The academic performance is inconsistent. One week they're doing really well. The next week it's like they they never even learned what you spent the previous week teaching them. Um, Unpredictable or impulsive behavior. You'll see this in a lot of the kids. And then the over and under reacting to to sounds, to bells or alarms, or let's say you like accidentally drop your stapler on your desk and it creates a bang. Those kids that have that really heightened startle startle response, uh, there's a really good chance that they're living in in an ACE environment. Um... They also, these kids have a really hard time taking constructive feedback. So these are the kids that get really defensive. They always want to do everything right. They get really, the perfectionists, they get really upset with themselves if they get anything wrong. Um, They're super reactive to authority figures, to the assistant principal or going to a skills room or something. It's, uh, It's the end of the world. And then change is really hard for kids that have unresolved trauma as well. And the transitioning from one activity to the next or one room to the next is a struggle for them as well. Um, So some suggestions for educators. Um, One of the points that I I don't think I touched on um, that I feel like is always a, a good thing to say, especially at this part of the school year, because um, a lot of these kids will come in the first few weeks of school and they'll be pretty good. You know, they might, they, you can tell that they're not totally on task or on par, but base, you know, basically they're, they're sort of there. And then in the next few weeks or like by Halloween, uh, they are, they're not behaving and they're like crazy in your classroom. And that's your, then you're just like, what the heck? Like this kid was great. And now suddenly they're bouncing off the walls. And what I tell teachers is that's the time when you give yourself a big hug and you say, Oh my gosh, I've done it. Yes. This kid feels safe because the only, so if we think about play and I know that you all know how important play is to a child's development Children can only play if they feel safe. Mm. And so these children that come from these homes where that have, you know, have ACEs in them, when they're staying in that lower part of their brain and their stress, that baseline is there, that drip, 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 they never feel safe enough to play. They can't really use their imaginations. And so if they start, I mean, yeah, it's not appropriate for them to start like pretending they're a choo-choo train in the middle of you trying to teach them how to read or whatever. But the fact that they're playing at that inappropriate time means that you've created a safe enough environment where they can let down their guard and they can actually get into those higher regions of their brain and do exactly what they're supposed to be doing at this developmental stage is learning through playing. That is- so. That is such a, an important, well, I just, I've never realized that. And that's such an important shift in perspective. It's a huge one, especially for this age group, this preschool through second grade. Um, it's, uh, it's super important. So that's another time where when you really want to just be like, oh my gosh, how am I going to get through this? Just hug yourself and just like, yes, I created a safe environment. They're me. safe. They feel safe. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. And then now what can I do to let them be safe but keep them, you know, within the parameters or the, in the rules and the structure of the mm-hmm. classroom so that mm-hmm. not detracting everyone else, but still. So some suggestions for you. This is, I think this is sort of how I finish up here. Um, as much as you can, and, and you know a lot of this and you're doing a lot of this already, um, but again, this is just sort of reiterating or maybe there's a couple of things that, that would be beneficial that you haven't thought of before. So um, as much as you can maintaining usual routines, uh, that 
that that reiterates that sense of safety okay i know what's going to happen and that normalcy the kids that as you know the kids that come from homes that don't have them they're going to resist and push the boundaries as much as they can but as much as you can just gently softly quietly lovingly say no this is what we have to do you know um mm-hmm. that will that will eventually stop the drip 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 stress at least when they're in your classroom and then in your presence and it might not happen until after christmas because especially for these younger ones when this is the first time they're coming into a school environment and this is the first time they're having these boundaries and parameters but it's also the first time where they're getting to shut off their alarm that's that's uncomfortable too that's something new and they you know they they've behaved this way for like three to five years, depending upon if they went to preschool or not. Mm-hmm. And it's been how they've survived in the world. So they need they need an adjustment period. It's like everything in their body has to re-regulate. It's like a tune-up for a car. And, it, and that can take a while. So try to be patient with yourself and them. Um, giving them choices. Again, this is this is something that you all do, but for, for trauma- children in traumatic environments, especially where there's abuse and neglect, um, they never feel like they're in control. They, they, they have this false sense of control and it gets taken away from them all the time because just when they think that they're going to get fed or they're not going to get hit or whatever, something happens in the, in the adult's life and that abuse or neglect happens again and then uh, once again they don't have control. So any... Um, any choices that you can give them into the classroom and they're going to be super resistant and it's going to be very hard for them initially but continue to encourage them no you can choose you can choose and that will that will increase their level of safety and start getting those higher thinking areas of the brain firing Um, the support and encouragement so any of you that can get parents in if you know especially if you know the the home situation or you know a kids in foster care or a kids just been adopted um, or just been removed from the home or dad's going to jail or mom's going to jail or someone's going to rehab like if you're aware of any of that family stuff going on and you have parent volunteers if you can assign them to these kids um, and, and just so that child has a little bit of extra support and love and nurturing and give your parents some of this information so that they understand that. Because most likely if the parent's coming in to volunteer in your classroom, they have a child that's securely attached and they probably don't have an ACE score. Um, so this child that you're assigning them to is going to be pretty foreign to them. So maybe just give them a little bit of information, not necessarily what's going on with the kid, but that, you know, that this kid has had a trauma pass and they need a little bit more love from you and a quiet voice. And if you could smile when you give them feedback, just those little things that we've talked about can make mm-hmm. a huge difference. Um, the clear, firm limits for in- inappropriate behavior and the logical um, consequences. And I always laugh when I say this because I feel like, you know, we hear it all the time logical versus punitive consequences but it's so hard to do sometimes and I feel like that's a that's like a that's going to be my next training is like to figure out how to teach myself and others to really understand and implement logical consequences um I look forward to that training oh me too (laughs) (laughs) me too uh let's see just going through my slides here to see um Oh, if you know that it's been a single traumatic event, like you know that uh, the child witnessed a car accident or was in a car accident or had a house fire or had a parent die, um, some of those single episodes, especially with our younger kids, they'll like just randomly, you know, shout out to the middle of the class. Oh, I saw someone's head off their body the other day when I was driving on the highway. You know, just like, and then the other kids in the class have the potential to freak out. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a little girl in art class here last week. I can't remember what art coach was was talking about, but this little girl just raised her hand and was like, "My daddy was killed by a gun this summer." Oh. And I'm laughing not because I think that that's funny, but it just gives you an example. It's a kindergartner, and it just kind of gives you an example of how these images and they don't have that filter right mm-hmm. so that the stuff just pops out mm-hmm. so in those in those instances um you know 
do you have someone in the room that can take the child and talk to the child? Do you have a counselor that you can call or can you call your principal so that you give, you don't ignore the comment, but you also don't address it in front of the whole class because mm -hmm. you can vicariously traumatize the other students in the class that, um, that have no idea that that kind of a world exists at all. Mm -hmm. um, and then if you do take time to talk to the child, um, try, to, try to keep things as simple and realistic as you can. Just uh, honor their feelings, you know, validate it for them. That must be really confusing and sad. Who do you talk to about this at home? Um, how about if I call mom and see if we can find someone for you to talk to to help you understand what it is you're feeling? Um, be sensitive to the cues in the environment. So this is one of the things, uh, the whole facial expression. I mean, I'm not expecting you to like stand in front of a mirror and watch how you teach math and see how many times you go from a smile to like a furrowed brow. Mm -hmm. But if you notice that a kid's having a startle response, um, maybe just, you know, like say you're walking around the room and you're looking over kids' shoulders. It, sometimes it can be as little as... Um, you look over a kid's shoulder and, and they, they jump or they just completely freeze and stop working. Maybe the next time you do it, you go to the other side. You know, maybe you're going to the right side and that's the arm that always gets pulled right before they're, they're abused when their uncle comes over the house. You know, those little, the more that you can become a reader of how your, your body and your body language um, affects the, the child in front of you, the more you can change and help create that safe environment. So that's a good thing to be aware of and try to affect. Um, it's great to give your kids warnings before you're going to do something out of the ordinary, like turn off the lights, or if you're going to have a change in schedule. Um, sorry, I'm just going through this to see if there's anything else. And then the, the last, sort of the last thing I have that I feel is a really good exercise to help those of you who have never had, who have never experienced a trauma to, to have a lens or a reminder of what these little ones might be going through when they're sitting in your rooms is for all of you to just take a moment and think about the most disgusting food to you in the world. Like that food that if it was the last thing in front of you and if you, you know, there was like no other food and you either had to eat that or die, you might even consider dying because <laughs> the thought of suggesting that is so disgusting. And once you have that, notice what happens, what's just happened to your face. Notice that there's probably more saliva being created in your mouth. Notice that maybe there's a tightening in your stomach. Maybe your breathing and your heart rate even changed. Maybe your hands went to your stomach or started ringing. Did your shoulders come up? Did your back tighten? So you have all of these responses to that very uh, sort of minor, trivial um, um, trauma of having tasted something that was really disgusting at some point in your life and never wanting to taste it again. And those body responses, so the only, the only thing I said to you was think of this food. There's your trigger. And then mm -hmm. all of this stuff happened. You, you probably, in your mind, you went through the time that you tasted that rotten milk or whatever it was. <laughs> and then all of this stuff happened to you physically. So that's what happens to kids. And it can happen to them a million times in a day, depending upon what their circumstances are. So that ick, just like, oh, so you're a kid, that kid, Bobby is doing it again. Oh my gosh, how much, there's all, how many more days of this school year? <laughs> and so the two things are think gross food and think, oh my gosh, what happened to Bobby that this is how he has to behave. And that will give you a little bit, um, a little bit of objectivity to treat this child with the love and nurturing and kindness and patience that I know you all want to treat them with. And that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Kelly. That is so, so welcome. It's so good to hear and so important. It's yeah, it is. And it's, it's just, it's wonderful because yeah, schools make a huge difference in these children's lives. It's really special. 
Do you have any suggestions for anybody who listens to this and they want to uh, learn more or they want to get more resources for kids in their class? Um, I would say if you want to learn more, a really good book is called um, The Body Keeps the Score. It's by Bessel van der Kolk. B-A-N-D-E-R-K-O-L-K. K-O-L-K, sorry. He runs the Trauma Center in um, Boston, Massachusetts. There's also the, um, the National Children's Trauma Stress Network, nctsn.org, I think it is. Mm-hmm. And they have a lot of information for um, about stress and what it does to kids and then also ideas for a lot of the um, slides that I used came off of that site and specifically for teachers. Mm-hmm. And then there is... Um, I can't remember the name of the organization now. If you go onto YouTube and um, you YouTube stress, um, like, what, no, like trauma sensitive in public schools, there'll be different uh, videos that you can watch, different presentations, and a lot of those will have people that. Um, that have organizations that offer these really intense trainings mm-hmm. in various cities. There's been a, a few pilot programs in Washington, D.C., and uh, there's a big one going on now because uh, it went through their state legislature. They got funding for it. I believe it's in Seattle. So there are, there are places around the country that are getting how important this is for, for schools because we do have these kids so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you, Lindsay. It's nice to virtually meet you. It's nice to virtually meet you, too. I think that Kelly's words are very powerful, and all of us immediately can reflect upon students in our current class or former class rooms that are trauma students that are just getting by, and they need our love and our help and our care. I know that I was really impacted by what she had to say, so I hope it's useful to everybody. I think it will be. Oh, it's amazing. (laughs) Kelly's amazing. Kelly's amazing. Thanks, Kelly. (laughs) Thank you, Kelly. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye, everyone. Kindergarten Kiosk is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network, a network of podcasts for educators, by educators. For more information, visit edupodcastnetwork.com. That's E-D-U podcastnetwork.com. Now can I listen to it?